Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Brazil has Black Lives Matter signs in the streets. We'll discuss the assassination of a critic of police brutality in Brazil. Liberation theology originated in Latin America. I'll talk with Reverend Naim Atik, who applies it to his work in the Middle East. And the language of food matters, how a change of terms could lead to less waste and less hunger. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Rio de Janeiro Councilwoman Marielle Franco was assassinated on March 14th. She was a human rights defender from the favelas in Rio, an outspoken critic of police brutality, and an openly queer black woman. Her assassination led to big protests in Rio. It's drawn international attention again to the disproportionate killing of black people in Brazil. Priscilla Neri is a Brazilian journalist and activist. She is a senior program manager at Witness, and they use video and human rights issues. Thanks for joining us, Priscilla. It's great to be here. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about Marielle and who she was and why this ended up being so meaningful to people in Rio? Sure. Marielle was a lifelong human rights defender from a network of favelas called the Maré Favelas on Rio. If, if anyone's been to Rio, you drive by it on your way from the airport to the more touristic parts of the city. And she really defied all of the odds and rose up to be a beautiful political leader. Um, she started her career working at the State Assembly on the Human Rights Commission, investigating a lot of complaints about police killings and police violence, um, and was really the first line of support for so many families that sought the commission for a decade um, before she became a councilwoman in helping them understand their paths for justice and supporting these families in their grief and their pain. How unique was she as a political representative, as a black woman, an openly queer person, uh, no black people are, you know, unrepresent, un, underrepresented. Uh, how did she fit in there? She was the only black queer woman serving on the Rio City Council. Um, and she deeply believed that the only way to achieve the society that we fight for in the human rights movement is through more representation and leadership of women and women of color specifically. Um, she was the fifth most elected, uh, most voted council person in 2016. And her presence, not just being a woman, but being poor, not just being a poor woman, but being a poor black woman, not just being a poor black woman, but also being queer and a single mother. She was really at the intersection of so many different layers of oppression. And her story really represented um, also a beautiful intersection of resistance um, from all these different groups of people. And that's really what she dedicated her life to. What kind of things was she saying that um, in the days and weeks coming up to her assassination here? So in early February, it was announced that the military would now become the police in Rio. 
Uh, this was a federal government announcement basically saying the police in Rio are so corrupt that we need the military to serve as the police in Rio. And Marielle, very in a very outspoken way, immediately um, said that that was a failed solution. She called it a publicity stunt. She said that that would just produce more deaths in the same neighborhoods. And on the 28th of February, she was appointed the special rapporteur in a commi commission on the city council that would have investigation and oversight powers over this military military intervention. Um, a few days before she died, she also uh, denounced the killings of two young people in the Acari favelas, Eduardo Ferreira and Reginaldo Batista. She posted on her Facebook that day, we need to continue raising our voices so that everyone knows what is happening. A day before she was killed, she tweeted again, uh, another young black man killed in a favela on the outskirts of Rio, this time in Jacarezinho. His name was Mateus Melo. He was 19 years old. She tweeted, how many more need to die for this war to come to an end? So this is the kind of outspoken vocal defense against very, very um, ingrained powers of oppression and killing that she really was not afraid to speak out against and, and really dedicated her life to speaking out when few others would. Now, her assassination, uh, could you describe what it was like? I'm sure some people have seen the pictures of the car and the area it was in, but um, uh, maybe some people haven't. But it was really, it sounds like a lot of bullets and a, a lot of uh, planning that went into this. Yeah, it was, you know, how all the hallmarks of a very clear execution. Um, the car in which the killers were waited outside for two, three hours of the event she was at before she was killed, then followed her for about four kilometers. They fired 13 bullets onto her car, four of which hit her head, and a few others hit her driver, Anderson Gomez, who was also killed in, in the attack. Um, nothing was taken. So this has all clear signs that this was a politically motivated execution, and and it was a political act of violence. It, it's not uncommon for human rights defenders to be killed in Brazil. Unfortunately, there's one killed every five days. But it is uncommon for an elected official to be killed in downtown Rio. Um, you know, it really signals a change of tactics uh, and a very concerning change of tactics for lots of the courageous and brave people that I work with in the favelas who continue to denounce the police violence that uh, victims the same kinds of communities and the same kinds of people over and over. Is there any evidence that would lead to the identification of the killers? Yes, yeah, so a few days after she was killed, it was revealed that the bullets used to kill her uh, were part of a lot uh, owned by the federal police. Um, this was a lot that was sell sold to the federal police in 2006, and bullets from this same lot were also involved in another mass killing in 2015 on the outskirts of Sao Paulo, in which 17 ki people were killed. Um, so we know that the bullets were police-owned. Now, is, are the police the most likely suspects then? Because it seems like the, I don't know, there would, could be multiple different kinds of security organizations that would want her uh, killed. You know, it, it's really hard to know where where the lines um, begin and end. Um, oftentimes we hear this being described as the war of the factions with uniforms, which are, you know, the state forces against the war of the factions without uniforms, which are the organized crime factions. Um, there's a lot of intersection there, so it's really hard to um, figure out which, which of these branches might have been responsible, but it seems clear, at least to me, um, that this, you know, came from very high levels of power. 
I'm talking with journalist Priscilla Nairi. She is an activist and a senior program manager at Witness. They use video on human rights issues. And we're talking about the assassination of Marielle Franco on uh, March 14th in Rio. Now, the protests um, afterwards, they seem to have made a very strong statement. How did... um, how did Brazilian politicians take this in? You know, the streets have been flooded for 13 days now, ever since Marielle was killed, not just in Rio, but around the world. Here in New York, we had at least three different protests um, to, pro- to make a promise almost that we will not um, let her voice die along with her body. Um, and politicians have officially said that, you know, they want to figure out who was the killer, and that's the official party line. Um, but I want to really stress here today that, you know, Marielle, um, uh, despite the uniqueness of her being an elected official executed in, in Rio and it being a political assassination, um, the, the issue of execution of black Brazilians is by no means um, unique. Uh, There's one black person killed every 23 minutes in Brazil, and it's really what um, a lot of people in the black movement and the human rights movements call a genocide. Um, Very few cases are ever resolved. Um, Most of the people killed by police, almost 80 percent, are black people. Um, And this is, you know, her death was in many ways representative of this bigger emblematic issue that generations of black people and poor communities have risen up to denounce, but too often in silence um, and invisibilized. And Marielle really understood the power of the counter narrative there to rise these, make these voices be seen and heard um, and represented in in the um, spaces of political power. How do you understand this um, through a, a kind of U.S. context. Um, People in the U.S. uh, die in violent ways. Um, People in Brazil die in violent ways. People uh, who are black are targeted in the U.S. People who are black are targeted in in Brazil because of security forces. But it seems like the numbers and the proportions in Brazil are are much larger. Uh, I, I, I don't know how to compare the two. There's a a massive difference in scale. Um, The official number um, of people killed by police in the U.S., if I'm not mistaken, is somewhere around 1,000. We have over 4,000 in Brazil in 2016, and some states don't even track that statistic, so it's not a super reliable number. Um, Despite the differences of scale, though, there are several uh, commonalities, right? Um, we know the geographies in which these killings happen. We know the demographics it affects. And we know that too often there's impunity. Um, so if you look even at the recent wave of killings of African-American men, mostly, and women here in the United States, there have been very few cases where the police have been held ac- uh, accountable and brought to justice. Now, that doesn't mean that there hasn't been um, massive organizing and mobilizing and strength, really, from these tragedies. And that's what all the people in Brazil really want to reiterate right now that Marielle's death um, will just give more fire to the struggle and will make many more black women uh, rise up and occupy these spaces. Um, So we see the commonalities in terms of, you know, the network of perpetrators and the networks of who makes these deaths um, go unnoticed or unreported or whose interest is it to make these deaths not be seen and heard. It's, there are several commonalities there um, with the United States. And we also see things like increased militarization of police, which we see in Brazil and here, uh, mass incarceration as a solution for really containing uh, these segments of 
the population as opposed to um, thinking about the problem in other ways in terms of providing you know, high-quality health care and education and opportunity in these spaces and not just public policies through the lens of security and force. How are Brazilian, Afro-Brazilian activists um, thinking about this? You know, um, everyone is devastated and shattered. Um, uh, unfortunately, the killing did have the effect of um, really chilling effect on everyone, particularly black women. Um, but what I hear a lot is that, you know, we don't even have the time for this pain because... Uh, our fight is not a fight um, that we can choose to be in. It's a fight for survival. Uh, the day after Marielle was killed in a community that we work in, in Rio Complexo do Alemão, um, three more people were killed, and among them a two-year-old baby um, who was in a stroller and caught in the crossfire. His name was Benjamin. Um, and that didn't make international news. Um, just this weekend, eight were killed in the Hacienda Favela. I don't even know their names because the community wasn't able to get close enough to the bodies who were all executed with bullets to the back um, to tell us what their names were. So, you know, it, there's not time really for the grief. And these courageous and brave women and leaders are continuing to the struggle with pain and they cry through it, but there's not a lot of time. And, and what I've heard from um, women who occupied similar spaces like her, women like Aurea Carolina, who was a city councilwoman in, in Belo Horizonte, black um, city councilwoman, and uh, Taliria Petroni, the only black uh, city councilwoman uh, in Niteroi, just outside of here. What I've heard from them over and over again is that this attempt to silence their voices will just amplify them. It's going to backfire. We will stay in the streets. We will stay in the favelas. We will stay in the countryside and in the institutions. And we will stand with each other um, to keep Marielle's voice alive, even if her body is no longer with us. You know, it seems like there is such a uh, big response to uh, organized crime and drug all, all over the world. We see in the Philippines people are being executed. Uh, it just seems to be a more acceptable tactic, um, even though it's been going on in Brazil for a long time. Um, is, it, uh, is it worse in Brazil now? Are the circumstances and the atmosphere of impunity greater than previously? Uh, it's... The, the government, um, the federal government, seems very unusual these days and, and bitter, bitter politics. Yeah, you know, just when we feel like we're, we're at the worst of it, um, somehow in the last few years it just keeps getting worse. I mean, in Rio you see a situation in which the government um, took on the World Cup in 2014 and then the, the Olympics in 2016 at the detriment of other public policies, which were, in fact, the priority of the residents. So teachers weren't getting paid. Schools were having to close down because the city was bankrupt because it chose to invest its money in these major sporting events um, for the glitz and the bragging rights of it. Um, and, you know, now we're seeing the effects of this, of this failed state. And also what we've seen is just a lack of imagination and, and political will um, and political competency in understanding how to really solve the root issues, right? Um, uh, there was an experiment called the UPPs a few years ago in Rio, which is now 
consensually everyone agrees that it's failed, but at the time it was touted as a really revolutionary model of policing, which would bring permanent police presence into the favelas um, and social economic investments so that these communities could rise up. And no surprise, the only thing that actually made it to the communities was the security part and not the education part, not the health part. Um, which is the central demand of these communities and really the way to, to address some of the root systemic causes of this kind of inequality. Um, so I wonder why why it takes you know someone like Marielle getting killed. Why aren't we able to amplify her message um, bef- while she's still alive um, and amplify the solutions that she fought for and defended um, because that really is a, a view on the bigger picture of how these issues should be addressed. What do you eventually expect to see with her case? I know the United Nations is interested in it now, all these organizations. I imagine the authorities are going to come up with something. You sound more hopeful than I do. <laughs> Um, I think there's a lot of attention on this case, and they're under a lot of pressure to really um, give some sort of explanation, not just to the family and to Marielle's friends and supporters, but to the world. Um, I don't know that I can trust what comes of this investigation, though, because as I said, I mean, the bullets were police-owned bullets. Um, There is a a government that came to power in what many regard as a political coup. Um, So there's not a lot of credibility in the information that comes out, um, even through official channels, which is why I think um, really upholding the counter-narratives that are coming from the affected communities themselves is the, the best way uh, to break this curse of silence and to um, honor Marielle's legacy. Priscilla Neri is a Brazilian journalist and activist. She's a senior program manager at Witness. They use video on human rights issues. And we've been talking about the assassination of Marielle Franco, who was assassinated on March 14th in Rio, the uh, Rio de Janeiro uh, councilwoman. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll keep our eye on the case. Thank you for having me. After the break, we'll talk about applying liberation theology in the Middle East. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. A reconciliation between Israelis and Palestinians is hard to imagine. Maybe that's all the more reason to try to do it. Reverend Naima Atik has some ideas about peace and reconciliation. His latest book is A Palestinian Theology of Liberation. Naima Atik is an Anglican priest and founder of Sabil Ecumenical Liberation Theology Center in Jerusalem. He's a former dean of St. George's Anglican Cathedral in Jerusalem. It's good to see you again. Thanks for joining us, Naeem. Thank you. 
Also with us is Brant Rosen. He is the Midwest Regional Director for American Friends Service Committee. He is Rabbi of Zedek, Chicago. And tonight he and Naeem are having a conversation, a dialogue toward a Palestinian and Jewish theology of liberation at Grace Place at uh, 637 South Dearborn. It's taking place at 630 tonight. Nice to see you, Brant. Thanks for having us. Uh, Naeem, tell me a little bit about applying liberation theology to what's going on in the Middle East. Probably most listeners are familiar with liberation theology as something that came to Latin America in the 80s and 90s. And um, how do you apply it there? Well, it's very easy in many ways because it has to do with life, uh, our life uh, under occupation, the Israeli occupation of our country. And it it basically means how do we apply, you know, our relationship with God, the way we understand God and God's commandments and God's expectations of us in our daily life as Palestinian Muslims and Christians living under occupation. Um, So it is our faith in God, a God who loves all people, this is the way we believe, that God loves all people. Uh, and, um, and this faith is being translated into our relationship with human beings, our brothers and sisters uh, that are living under occupation. So you should try to be nice to everyone? Is that what's going on? No, we need to challenge everyone, <laughs> especially those who are doing injustice and those who are oppressing the Palestinian people, which is basically the government of Israel. Well, how do you do something like that and try to keep your, your humanity, keep your focus? It's very difficult because we really, uh, I mean, we believe in nonviolence and we can only lift up a voice of nonviolence against the oppression um, um, and try to really be faithful to God in doing this in that sense. So it's not really easy in terms of um, doing more, you know, in our activities and so on. It's basically, I mean, we try to really educate our people uh, on the power of nonviolence uh, and try really to continue to exercise it as much as we can. But it is uh, uh, in terms of real um, uh, real impact uh, on the government of Israel, I, I'm sorry, I don't think we have much in that sense. Um, Rabbi Brent Rosen, uh, how does this dialogue work uh, between you and Naim Atik? You're going to have a conversation about a, a Palestinian Jewish theology of liberation. What's the back and forth like? Well, for me, uh, discovering Naim's work was a very powerful experience and a, and a, a very important challenge uh, for me as a Jew. Uh, as Naim said, his theology comes out of his lived experience as a Palestinian. And uh, he has a relationship with the, the Hebrew Bible, what he would call the Old Testament, what I would call the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and it's our shared tradition. Uh, but his experience of how the Hebrew, how the Bible is used by, by Zionism as, in, in a sense, a claim to this piece of land uh, is... Uh, a very negative one, to put it mildly. 
Uh, and yet, biblical tradition is something that, as a Jew, I, I, I cherish. So I had to think about, well, what do I do with that challenge? What do I do with the parts of the Bible that command that we, that the Israelites have to go into Canaan and expel and exterminate the people there? Uh, this is part of my spiritual tradition, uh, just as Naim has to struggle with uh, the, the legacy of that living uh, as a Palestinian in Israel. I have to struggle with the legacy of that as a Jew who cherishes this tradition, but also is um, confronted with a, a nation that's acting in my name uh, that's, to my mind, using this tradition in, um, in destructive ways. Um, Naeem, do you have some thoughts about what uh, Brandt is saying there? Yes, very much. Um, it is the, those. There are texts in the in the Hebrew Bible, in our Old Testament, um, that um, talk about the eviction, the ethnic cleansing of the people of the land, and today a good number of the settlers and extremist Jewish people living in Israel and and in the uh, settlements use those texts against the Palestinians. And they believe that uh, these texts are mandated by God and they can use them against us. So what we try to do is to really show that even within the, the Hebrew Bible itself, um, some of these texts have been critiqued, you know. But unfortunately, you, we are dealing with, with extreme settlers who are using those texts against the Palestinians. And so we tried to bring out from within the Hebrew Bible itself other texts where God is also speaking to, other, to prophets and talking about against those texts and uh, and encouraging people to live together, like Ezekiel is very clear that he's talking about the importance of living together in the land under God. Uh, and, and Ezekiel is actually critiquing Leviticus that only talks in a more ex- exclusive way rather than the inclusive way that Ezekiel is talking about. I think, um, you know, when it comes to talking a extremist settler out of their positions, I imagine it's pretty hard. But is there a way that this could happen with other religious leaders in Jerusalem? There's uh, all we always hear. There are, there are interfaith leaders in Jerusalem who are doing good work and talking together and, uh, and you know, can get on the same page. Is, is that a point of leverage that, that would work with more people? It can. Unfortunately, the problem now is that you, we are dealing with a very extreme uh, government, a government that is very right-wing, and, um, and they're, they are not using those texts that talk about justice and about peace. They are using uh, a language that is very exclusive and very contrary to, to, to peace. And that's what makes, makes life very difficult for us. Um, it, you know, it 
sounds like the people who are talking about a peace deal now are discussing a international status for Jerusalem and some kind of international government governance. And the Saudis are in on this. And does that sound like anything good to you? Does that sound like something that would um, be all right? Um, if it is based on justice, if it is based on international law, it will sound very, very good for us because we believe that it is possible to find a resolution of the conflict on the basis of international law where uh, Israel and uh, Palestine can live together and the Palestinians and Israelis can live together in peace. But it has to really be based on uh, on on uh, the demands of international law. I'm talking with Naim Atik. He's an Anglican priest, founder of Sabil Ecumenical Liberation Theology Center in Jerusalem. His new book is called A Palestinian Theology of Liberation. And Brant Rosen is here, too. He's Midwest Regional Director for American Friends Service Committee and Rabbi at Zedek Chicago. And I wonder, what, what did you make of um, the U.S. saying, well, Jerusalem is now... Uh, the capital of Israel, we recognize that we're moving our embassy. Uh, how, did, how does that fit in with creating this um, this justice and this, this peace deal and this international city that you see? I don't think uh, what President Trump has done in uh, calling Jerusalem the capital of Israel, I don't think he has done any service actually to peace. I think he he actually exacerbated the problem. I think um, uh, since he has made that declaration, very exclusive declaration, uh, hundreds of Palestinians have been killed or wounded uh, defending uh, Jerusalem because Jerusalem is not only holy and uh, uh, holy and important and special for Jews alone, it is holy and special for Muslims and Christians. And for, for Trump to really give Jerusalem to, to Israel without the right negotiations, without uh, the United Nations, without the, the, great, the powers that have been talking about the importance of negotiating a settlement that honors the importance and the holiness of Jerusalem for the three, uh, for the three religions. Brant Rosen, you have some thoughts on the embassy in Jerusalem? Yeah, I think what happened with the uh, moving of the American embassy to uh, Jerusalem, I think, is also an example of how religion and politics are are dovetailing with one another. Uh, and it's it's important, I think, to point out that there is, uh, for those who are lobbying for Israel, there is a strong Christian Zionist lobby that is, uh, is has been pressuring for this move uh, alongside um, many uh, Jews in, in uh, the Israel lobby. And Mike Pence, who is our vice president, is a Christian Zionist himself. So when we when we're talking about uh, the the conflict there in a, in a land that is uh, has historically been a place of faith for so many people, I think it's really important to tease out uh, 
who are the who are the interests here and who are who what is what is their interest in this piece of land is it uh, do they have specific exclusive designs on it from their own religious ideology or do they ascribe to the kind of theology that Naeem is describing, the one uh, that values the lives of all people who live there because all people are children of God. We're all made in the image of God and according to the, the biblical tradition that we all cherish. And I think the, the latter is really what the vision that we are trying to fight for. Um, Naeem, do you have some thoughts about Mike Pence and what he represents? He, he made a trip to the Middle East. It was widely criticized. Um, what, what did it say to you? Well, because of his background as a Christian Zionist, he sees and he reads events from that perspective, which is um, really very damaging uh, to peace in many ways because Christian Zionism um, – believes in the in the importance of having all Jews return to the land of Palestine, but they don't really have very good intentions for them at the end of times. <laughs> no, they don't. Yeah, and that's that's what makes it very disturbing for us, you know. There's that little detail of Armageddon to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so, so you think uh, Mike Pence has Armageddon on his mind? I am sure. I am sure. And... Uh, I mean, it seems so um, kind of uh, far-fetched. I think it seems so far from politics. It is. I mean, if you're if you're looking at the way many of us um, who are working for a just peace for people living together, I don't think God is interested in Armageddon. I think this is a wrong theology. Uh, this is a wrong interpretation of the Bible. Uh, because I think God is helping many people to work for justice, for truth, for uh, for peace, uh, for the whole people of God in the world who are trying to really uh, find uh, goodness and uh, friendships and peaceful relations. This is what we are about, you know, and this is what we need to work for. Brent Rosen? One of the things I think that's most troubling about the current administration uh, is not the stuff we re- read about daily, the, you know, the Trump shenanigans that we read about daily, but rather where a big where Trump is receiving his uh, support from in no small way is from evangelical Christians and Christian Zionists. And uh, there, I can't think of a time in which uh, this kind of a religious ideology was this close to the White House, and in the case of Mike Pence, really a heartbeat away from the White House. And that, I think, is what should be most concerning to us about this administration, is the way it has empowered uh, Christian fundamentalism in this in this country and in a ways that are going to have, uh, I believe, we believe, uh, a very, very destructive, potentially destructive uh, results in the Middle East and around the world. And the U.S. is going to open its embassy in Jerusalem in May. It, it's happening faster than people anticipated. Sometimes they say it's it's about um, the midterm elections or something, getting getting a little punch in before the midterm elections. That's kind of wild. Yeah, in the beginning, we thought that uh, it will be delayed till next year so that maybe there will be more pressure on the United States to change its mind, uh, to really look for for real peace. 
I mean, the Palestinian Authority uh, has uh, has been very distressed, you know, about what what really because uh, Trump, President Trump, has shut the door. Because if Jerusalem is taken out of the equation, what's left? You know, we always say resolve the issue of Jerusalem justly for all the people of the land and um, and that would open the way for a good resolution of the conflict for the whole for Palestine and Israel. Reverend Naeem Atik is an uh, Anglican priest. He is the founder of Sabil Ecumenical Liberation Theology Center in Jerusalem. And his latest book is A Palestinian Theology of Liberation. And he's in town and he'll speak with Rabbi Brant Rosen at an event called Dialogue Toward a Palestinian and Jewish Theology of Liberation. It's tonight at 6.30 at Grace Place, 637 South Dearborn. And Naeem Atik is then off to Notre Dame University and speaking there as well in the coming days. So check that out if you're in the South Bend area. And thanks very much for joining us. Nice talking with you both. Thank you. Thank you, Jerome. Thanks. Coming up after the break, we will talk about the language of food and why it matters. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The language of food matters. A change of terms could lead to less waste and less hunger. Megan Blake is a geographer and director of the Food Security and Food Justice Program at the University of Sheffield. She has a new article in The Conversation, and we're going to talk about it. Thanks for joining us, Megan. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to be here. You know, your article is called, it would caught our eye, Capitalism Has Co-Opted the Language of Food and It's Costing the World Millions of Meals. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> well, actually, I wanted to call it Food is Food or Is It, sort of after the whole Brexit thing. Um, but the editor decided that would be the title. Um, it, it, the, the kind of meaning behind it is to what I'm trying to do is push people to think a little bit more about the language that we use and the stuff that we take for granted. So the research that I do at the University of Sheffield focuses on how institutions and material arrangements, the stuff of cooking, engaging, getting with, connecting to food, shape what we think of as possible or impossible. So by institutions, I mean things like formal policies and rules and norms, but also stuff like the language, the language we use when we think of ordinary food. And for a lot of people, most people um, in de- capitalist development countries, and certainly uh, in, the, in the United Kingdom, um, where I am, uh, that means food that you buy at the supermarket. And of course, when you start thinking about food that you buy at the supermarket as being ordinary, everything else becomes kind of alternative to that. So it was kind of trying to push at those notions to think about how, why, how might we reframe how we understand food to make it more accessible to more people. I think everyone realizes we've got enough food if we can just distribute it uh, better. It would mean less people that are hungry. And when we start distributing the food at um, pantries or surplus food or, I don't know, expired food, uh, these things are um, 
I guess we put food on a different level. It's not food is food anymore. It's just it's some other kind of uh, it's a bad product or something. Well, that's kind of the that, that's absolutely it, and it's linked to how we understand what normal food is. So, if you buy normal food, you're you know you you're buying it. It's it's that kind of consumption uh, purchase arrangement. And of course, when we start thinking of food as something that must be purchased in order for it to be good quality or normal, um, then you know the better food is the more expensive food, which eliminates certain people from being able to access that. Um, it narrows down food itself to things like. Um, just being part of an economic consumption relationship as opposed to relationships that families have with each other through food, that sort of family meal thing, or relations that neighbors have when they share that cup of sugar. I don't think people do that so much anymore. Um, so it doesn't have to involve food, doesn't have to involve an exchange at the supermarket, and yet we tend to default to that. Um, and so, you know, and it has to do with how we think of ordinary food versus these sort of other alternative foods, which may be, you know, sort of green lefty food that's gotten from the farmer's market or surplus food, which may be gotten from a community organization. It's still just food at the end of the day. Is there anybody who's doing a good job uh, breaking this down in your mind or there, there are some there's some pretty sophisticated food surplus organizations out there in, in the U.S. and the U.K. And do they get somewhere when it comes to kind of just treating food as food? Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of debate over should we be using surplus food to feed people? Um, there's a lot of debate over is a, is emergency food supply really the right, right way to go? Um, and I would argue, actually, we need to think about notions of resilience. And, and we need to stop thinking of it as either or, you know. And for me, if we think of poverty or as insecurity, let's exp expand the definition a bit, food insecurity as uh, kind of a pit. The first step or the first rung on the ladder of getting out there might be that sort of um, coping uh, a, a resilience that can be enabled by something like emergency food supply. But that's just the first rung on the ladder. And what we need are further rungs on that ladder from from coping to maybe transformation, which might involve helping people to um, learn job skills or have cooking lessons or things like that. Two things, two, two interventions that really focus on helping them to transform their lives from within. So more asset-based, thinking about what do you bring to the table that can be exchanged, contributed, shared? What knowledges do you have? Because one of the things I find in the communities that I work with is that they might be described as deprived communities or places where there's lots of poverty. There are actually people are doing amazing things with each other and for each other um, that meet their own needs. And it's not always just about, you know, providing a job. Uh, is there some kind of re way to reimagine our distribution system to make it uh, better or something? I'm, I'm thinking about like instead of a food pantry at a church, if you had a uh, kind of more like a food pseudo grocery store with a place to cook for people with somebody to help make some suggestions about different recipes to use and, and um, but it might be something more inviting and community-oriented. 
There absolutely there are um you know the I I don't want to diss the the food pantry or the I, the emergency food suppliers because people there are people who need those and it, you know it, but it should be something that's an emergency not kind of something you come to depend upon or that communities come to depend upon so there are organisations for example community shop um, in the UK here is doing amazing things to they have a a, a store that is primarily full of surplus food um, that people can access for lower cost, but that gets them in the door. Food gets you in the door um, and people in the door to then move on and engage with other activities and services. Um, There are some fantastic school programs and some people here in Sheffield uh, who are running the Real Junk Food Project um, take surplus food and distribute it to schools and help uh, that gets used in lessons and children are engaging with the food and learning to be able to explore and and invent with food, which they can't do if you're, you know, if your household budget is tight. So there's a whole possibility of things and organizations that are working that way. Uh, so, wait a minute. The name of that is the Real Junk Food Project? Is, yes. that, is that a good name? Well, it, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that I think they're trying to play on the the idea of junk food and and food loss or food waste. I mean, one of the problems with the idea of food food waste is actually surplus food is not food waste in the term of a platescaping kind of notion. Um, surplus food is food that's still edible and good for you, um, or it can be good for you. It's still completely edible, um, but the but it tends to get wasted and so, or it becomes junked, right? And what they're trying to do is recover that food, keep it from becoming waste um, and keep, keep it within the supply chain um, so that people can use it, access it. And, and the junk food project, what they do is they do it on a pay as you feel model. Um, so people pay what they think it's worth to them. All right. Um, are there a lot of people who are, uh, I noticed um, a scientist, he was a climate scientist, and he was thinking about food from a carbon consumption point of view. And he started going to places where he could get surplus food because he wanted to uh, not use so much carbon in his in getting food. Mm-hmm. Is that a different way to um, – he's kind of redefined food in a, a way that is um, – you know, it's not about I don't have enough. It's about I want to be as efficient as possible about this. Yeah. And, and and certainly so that's one of the things that Junk Food Project is trying to do. But also so there's a there's a, a group here in the United Kingdom that does something. It's called Super Kitchen and they do social eating and it's anybody can show up whether they have no money or lots of money and they come and they eat together and the idea behind it is that people uh, talk to each other talk to your neighbors learn to connect again because we've become quite so isolated um and and again that those sorts of projects are not about looking at at things like food poverty or framing notions of lack against notions of poverty we can certainly think of people who have enough money to buy food, but may be food insecure. Um, for example, somebody who might be uh, disabled and struggle to go to the store and to cook in their own kitchen. And to go to somewhere like a super kitchen meal would enable them to kind of get those other beyond nutrition, beyond calorie kinds of aspects of food that are so important. We haven't said anything really about government and their responsibility, but there are responsibilities that governments have to supply nutrition to 
communities? Is that is it? Should that factor into how we define what this system looks like? Well, yes, um, there is an obligation. Uh, there are UN obligations, but unfortunately, it tends to stop. The unit of analysis tends to stop at the national boundary. So, for example, the UK looks and says, "Well, we have this surplus. We have an excess of food. We we import an awful lot of it, but we have this excess of food, and so every you know, there's plenty of food for everybody to eat. Um, and we here in the UK don't count." people who struggle to eat. We have no statistics for that, um, despite efforts and pushing to count and to identify. So we don't actually really know how many people are food insecure, although the numbers of people accessing support have just ballooned, ballooned outrageously. The, the U.S. is a little different. There are, there are cal- um, calculations for people who are in food poverty, um, but counting them, again, isn't quite enough. Uh, you need programs and and um, collaborations. I you know I'm a little wary of national scale programs that push um, excess from the commercial sector into uh, into communities because it may not be the food that they want or it may not be um, the best f- food for them, um, and it doesn't give them any ownership of it. And I, you know I I believe strongly that we need a sort of again like I said an asset based approach where communities are able to engage with and 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 help shape and define their own food systems rather than having it being shaped for them. So I think it's a collaboration between government and uh, local governments, but also uh, local people in their neighborhoods. Megan Blake is a geographer and director of the Food Security and Food Justice Program at the University of Sheffield. We were talking about her article in The Conversation, which is called Capitalism Has Co-Opted the Language of Food and Costing the World Millions of Meals. Thanks a lot for joining us, Megan Blake. Thanks for having me. Tomorrow we'll have another fine show for you. We're also going to be at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs tomorrow. I'll be talking with Yasha Monk at 5.30. Drop on by. There's tickets at wbez.org slash events. And we'll be talking about illiberal democracy and why the U.S. is becoming a illiberal democracy. We'll talk about ways to get out of it. Uh, Yasha Monk is a very interesting guy teaching at Harvard these days. I'll be talking with him uh, tomorrow at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs Come on out at 5.30. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering and Daniel Musisi for curating our music. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.